everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Coronavirus, Reducing Risk in the Workplace, sponsored by DuPont Sustainable Solutions. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine. I'll be your moderator for today for this very timely topic. Thanks for joining us. On behalf of our entire team here at the National Safety Council, which is currently working remotely, we hope you are all safe and healthy. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation. But first, I'd like to go over some housekeeping items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or the Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time at all during the presentation. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible today, but we might not be able to get to every question. Any questions we don't get to, however, will be forwarded along to today's speakers. If you happen to have any technical issues during this webcast, please refer to our list of helpful tips that's located on the right-hand portion of your screen. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located at the bottom of your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, which I'll tell you more about later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, visit our website at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Also today, our sponsor, DuPont Sustainable Solutions, is providing two resources for all attendees, which you can find under the Resources widget on your screen. These helpful resources discuss how businesses can effectively recover from the COVID-19 disruption. So please feel free to check those out. With that, let's introduce our panel of speakers today. First is Nicholas Barr. He is the Global Director of Operational Risk Management and Process Safety at DuPont Sustainable Solutions. Nicholas has more than 35 years of experience helping clients identify, prioritize, and reduce risk. Dr. Victor Gorduk is the director of the Sickle Cell Center at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He is also a professor of medicine who specializes in the treatment of patients with sickle cell disease. Dr. David Warlock is an emergency medicine and primary care physician based in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He has more than 30 years of experience in the field and is an American Board of Emergency Medicine ER doctor. And leading our panel discussion today will be Craig Sexton, who has enjoyed a 30-year career in the film, TV, and entertainment industry as an award-winning producer, director, and writer. As the Global Creative Director for DuPont Sustainable Solutions, Craig helps organizations develop branding and strategic communication initiatives. Again, we thank you all for tuning in today to this presentation, and Craig, whenever you're ready, Go ahead and take it away. Well, thanks, Barry. I appreciate that. And hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And welcome to DuPont Sustainable Solutions webinar on coronavirus, reducing risk in the workplace. We'd like to start with the latest from the WHO and the CDC. As of March 26th at 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there are more than four. 416,000 confirmed cases of the virus worldwide and over 18,000 deaths. 196 countries, areas, or territories are affected. 
In the U.S. alone, there are more than 55,000 cases and over 700 deaths. For the latest up-to-date information, you can visit the CDC and WHO websites. Now, the president has issued a series of guidelines to help slow the spread of the virus, and several states and large cities are now ordering residents to stay home. But of course, for some of us, including many listening in today, we are part of the essential infrastructure and have to go to our workplaces. People and industries are depending on us. So what can we do? I'd like to bring in our panelists to talk about just that. Let me start with Dr. Victor Gorduk from the UI Medical Center in Chicago. Dr. Gorduk, thanks again for joining us today. Now, we've all been washing our hands and practicing social distancing. Is there anything else that we can do to protect ourselves? Are there any new developments regarding how one can contract the virus from surfaces and airborne droplets? What can we do, doctor? Yeah, well, thank you, Craig, for the opportunity of uh, participating in this conference today. Uh, one thing I'd like to uh, discuss in this really incredible time that we've never experienced before when, when we're faced with this fatal epidemic and we're hearing about it every day constantly and there's a lot of fear and wondering about exactly how widespread this uh, epidemic is and how much danger each of us has for the epidemic. Uh, to look a little bit at the statistics you just mentioned to us, you told us there are 416,000 cases worldwide and 18,000 deaths. Now, if you do a quick calculation, this comes out to be about 4.3% of the people who have contracted the virus or who have been identified with the virus die, and that's worldwide. And here in the U.S., you mentioned 700 deaths out of 55,000 confirmed cases, and that's 1.3% mortality rate. So you notice that the mortality rate in the U.S. is quite a bit lower than worldwide based on these statistics. It's probably related to the fact that we have um, a very advanced healthcare system and access to more hospital beds, intensive care unit beds, and respirators than most other countries, including the uh, countries in Europe that are experiencing such high mortality, high mortality rates. But the other point I'd like to make here is that we don't know how many people in the background population have this have the virus. Um, the testing that we have right now only measures the active infection. It measures the RNA or genetic material of the virus in our nasopharynx. And so it's people that have an active infection or clearing the infection that will be detected as positive. Once you've cleared an infection, your body has developed an antibody response that has helped to clear the infection. And then the antibodies persist in the serum for quite a long time. And by measuring antibodies, one can see how many people have actually been infected. We know from people who've been on cruise ships that quite a few people who are actually infected with the virus don't develop any symptoms or develop very mild symptoms. So this means that the actual fatality rate from people who become infected is much lower than 1.3% in this country and 4.3% worldwide. And that's not to make us 
not want to be very careful, but it's, I think, to help us not panic that the mortality is rate is quite as high as these statistics seem to show at first glance. But what we also know is that the young people tend to not develop the severe disease or the fatal respiratory failure, and it's the elderly or people with uh, compromised immunity who t- tend to develop that severe outcome. And so it's really important because asymptomatic people, people that even don't know they have the virus or the virus appears to be just a mild cold, can be spreading the virus to the elderly or to the immunocompromised who will actually die if they get infected. We all have to be extremely careful and follow these uh, recommendations that the Centers for Disease Control and the uh, president have outlined for us. Well, thank you, Doctor. Is there anything, uh, just to kind of reiterate the question, is there anything that we've learned recently that we can do differently to help protect us from the virus? I think that we have to follow the instructions that we've already been given. So, uh, in addition to washing our hands with soap and water, preferably, or with hand sanitizer if we don't have soap and water, um, Especially considering that anywhere we go, there could could have been some air, some droplets gone from the respiratory tract and an infected person that has landed on that surface. We need to be washing our hands, um, avoid touching your face because uh, the virus can be on your fingers, and if it gets near to your mouth or to your eyes, that's a good way to enter the body. Also, we need to be careful about sneezing or coughing. Use good techniques about coughing into a tissue or into our sleeve if uh, there's no tissue available. Disinfect items very frequently around in on surfaces, doorknobs, uh, other areas where many different people will be touching as much as possible. These are all things that we do to avoid spreading the influenza virus, and, and now they're what we do to uh, avoid spreading the coronavirus. There are kind of some other things that it's good to think about in this regard. So, for instance, at this time, uh, maybe it's a good idea not to visit uh, the elderly in the nursing homes for a few weeks until we're sure that we're we don't have we're not one of those asymptomatic people who might be carrying the virus. And also, if you feel sick, if you begin to start to have a sore throat, mild fever, a cough, runny nose. It's really best to stay home. Don't go to work. Stay home. Uh, try not to even to go to the store under those circumstances because the coronavirus can appear as just mild symptoms of a mild cold. So we need to be really considerate of those around us and especially of the elderly and the immunocompromised that can get a very severe or even fatal infection. Yes. Well, thanks, doctor. I mean, for me, that says um, we should also be very conscious of our um, elderly grandparents or our even our parents. Um, uh, we don't want to bring the virus home and then spread it to them. And I think what I'm hearing is that we just need to stick to the basics. And you'll see them up here on our screen. I mean, we've been hearing this nonstop for the past several weeks, but they're more important than ever. So let me just restate them again. They come straight from the CDC guidelines. Wash your hands regularly and often. Practice social distancing. 
Try not to touch your face and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. Also, Dr. Gorduk, I know the medical community is connected globally, and some of your colleagues are fighting this in other countries around the world. Is there any shared knowledge or best practices you could share with our listeners now? Um, yeah, there's some insights from other countries. Um, I have a close colleague who is an Italian doctor practicing in this country, but he is actually from Milan, the epicenter of the infection in northern Italy. And he was in contact with physicians there as the situation was becoming severe and getting out of control. And he shared with us the um, severe overloading of the healthcare system, the lack of uh, ICU beds, the lack of respirators, the lack of the ability to give advanced life support to everybody who could have benefited from it. And uh, he told us, hey, this is coming here, too. We need to get ready. And so we started to get ready in our uh, places of work, even when there were barely any cl- any cases, to begin to set in place uh, possibilities and what we would do if the situation becomes much worse. And we've set that in place because of our uh, communication with people in Italy. And also, uh, I have a, also a close colleague from Iran who's given personal information about the situation in Iran. He's a man in probably his early 40s, and several of his colleagues from medical school have actually died from the virus. So in certain countries, even younger people are getting severe infection and, and dying. And that's a country where the access to medical care is not nearly as good as in our country. Um, also, I've been in contact with my colleagues in Russia, and there um, the infection is just starting, but they're taking uh, really strong efforts in terms of social distancing and in following the basic recommendations of our CDC. And they tell me that this supermarkets are becoming bare there for necessities such as toilet tissue that we see in this country. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, Let me bring in Dr. Werwath for a moment. Uh, Dr. Werwath, you were in the ER for over 30 years, and currently you are a primary care physician who is still treating patients on a regular basis. Obviously, everyone is being encouraged to stay at home. How do we know when it's time to come in and see you if I am sick? Craig, I thank you for that question. Um, we're very grateful when patients are calling with that question because we are doing some triage. But sometimes there's an urge or a need to come in that is overwhelming to a patient. It might be physical. It might be psychological due to the severity of their symptoms. Therefore, we're urging all patients to seek help for those you know, types of uh, urgencies. And and whether we can help them or an emergency department can help them is going to be based on sort of our triage of their severity. Uh, if a patient has the uh, tr- uh, triad of a fever greater than 100 or a cough that is either very dry or has become moist, shortness of breath with uh, trouble breathing, um, and they've added travel or um, to uh, one of the states in this country, Washington, um, California, New York, Illinois, um, 
some of the hot spots of uh, COVID-19 or an exposure to a coworker or family member that has the illness, then we're suggesting that they go to the emergency department or to a drive-through testing station to be tested. Um, if you know their symptoms are less severe, and or they don't meet that uh, triad of uh, symptoms, and we're suggesting that patients uh, um, come into our clinic. Uh, we're open as usual for all comers, and uh, with sort of the caveat that people are immunocompromised, older than 60, and it's uh, interesting to hear that there's younger folks that are succumbing in other countries to this illness. It's not widely reported, but um, you know, folks that are relatively healthy. Uh, should still, you know, seek medical care if they have the uh, psychological or physical need to be seen by a, a clinician. Uh, just in the past few days, we've, you know, seen folks with uh, chest pain that have turned to be myocardial uh, damage uh, to muscles. We've drained abscesses. We've sewn up cuts. We've taken care of people that needed health care. And one reason, and I've been asked this question multiple times, why I, I stay open in spite of the type of, and I have a walk-in urgent care, is that there needs to be a place where people can seek medical care away from the emergency department that um, might be something that um, gives them more of a peace of mind when they come in. Uh, for people who are less severe with um, possible COVID symptoms, we're telling them to shelter uh, in place, uh, treat symptomatically, and obviously there's been a run on uh, some of the over-the-counter medications that are used for uh, cold and cough, um, but we still would advise folks to um, use those types of medicines if they're less severe. Uh, and it's very important that we tell our patients to keep in touch with us. I mean, while I'm sitting, you know, at the phone here, just received a text message from a young lady who's been coughing um, for the past three days, had a COVID test that's not available, and she's wondering if she now has pneumonia, so we'll deal with that when we're done. But, you know, we need to have communication with our patients and being available, um, and I'm a physician who does give out my cell phone number, and our office number is... Um, very available to to patients also. And lastly, and we're going to talk about this later, telecommunication or telemedicine is, you know, jumped into our uh, field of care, and we've been using that quite extensively here at the clinic to try to keep um, people who either have an anxiety about coming in or people who are at a high risk to keep them out of the clinic. Thank you. Well, Dr. Warwath, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you actually being there on the front lines and uh, dealing with this every day. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, is the proper procedure that you're recommending for our listeners is to place a phone call uh, before just walking into an ER or walking into a urgent care clinic? Ideally, that would take place. Uh, unfortunately, there are um, less facilities. Um, we would assume that uh, would would you know just graciously give out numbers to be called. There is a hotline in the city of Virginia Beach and uh, Hampton Roads to call in regarding respiratory symptoms. But, you know, once again, there's always other things that people don't know whether they should go to the emergency room or not, and that's, you know, the type of thing that we, we're able to help with here. Uh, hopefully they can find a resource uh, from their own family physicians to um, be able to help them with that decision-making process. Well, great. So, I mean, if you're feeling symptomatic, probably the first and most cautious step is to try to place a phone call because you wouldn't want to walk into an urgent care clinic or into a... Um, uh, hospital ER 
um, when you're carrying the virus. Let me just ask you one quick additional question. Are we going to see a larger move towards telemedicine? And is this a good and appropriate way to address the coronavirus? Telemedicine, I believe, is just exploding across uh, this country regarding uh, physician-patient interaction. There is a wonderful advantage. There is no exposure to a medical community that might spread a um, viral illness, um, and patients are very much at ease with that type of evaluation right now. The disadvantages are it takes out the intuitive uh, impressions that face-to-face uh, encounters and the uh, interpretation of vital signs, physical examination, and and then that that is taken out of the equation. So having a visual um, opportunity to spend time with a patient, I did that this morning, FaceTiming with a, a person with a, an arm injury. Um, she did not, her husband's quarantined right now, or at least self-quarantined due to COVID exposure, and so she did not want to come in the facility, so that was uh, very advantageous for her. Um, and it's just, you know, our normal evaluation diagnosis comes through years and hundreds of thousands of interactions with sick and uh, uh, patients that allow accurate um, diagnoses and treatment plans to be initiated. And so, you know, when you take out that physical contact, there is a small amount of, uh, of the accuracy that is going to be lost. Um, but um, given the environment we're in, it is very serious to uh, um, accommodate the patients who either one, could spread the virus, or two, have the apprehension about coming into the clinic, of which most of our elderly patients fit into that category right now. So we have started phone uh, encounters uh, with the MD in our clinic. We um, can't get a physical signature for approval, so we document a witnessed uh, verbal approval with a scribe that sits with me during my encounters. Uh, we get the verbal permission to initiate a visit. We get the verbal permission to bill the insurance company if that's applicable. We also have a self-insured rate, but we also would take care of people if, if they were unable to pay also. That's my uh, style of uh, medical care. Um, you know, MDs have been doing this for years, and it's called a callback. You know, a person calls in, and you call them back, and you didn't ever charge for it, but as, as long as there's means for that, um, I think that's not, not an unreasonable thing to do. But it's de- definitely taking off and expanding quite rapidly. Well, I think it's um, at least to say that it's probably a good method of easing some of the stress um, that's being put on our emergency rooms and our frontline Um, doctors that are dealing with this every day. Thank you so much, Dr. Warwath. All right, so what about reducing operational risk? Let me bring in Nicholas Barr. He's our global leader of operational risk management. Nick has over 35 years of experience in the area and is an internationally recognized thought leader and expert in operational and enterprise risk management and process safety. Nick, the statistics are out there, and they can be shocking to hear. Forbes just published an article discussing how 40% of all businesses never reopen after a disaster. And for those that do reopen, only 29% still operate after two years. Now, specifically, they're referring to businesses that have suffered from earthquakes and tsunamis, fires, and the like. But any way you slice it, 
those numbers are sobering. I know we're currently working with several organizations in China who are in the process of recovering from the pandemic. Tell me what you're seeing in terms of the business recovery right now. Uh, thanks, Greg. That's a great question. I think it's interesting to remember, you know, you just brought up the, the point of earthquakes and hurricanes and tsunamis and things like that. When you think of response and recovery, what we're finding is those lasted a couple of days or a week, right? So the response, saving lives immediately after an earthquake or a tsunami or fire, was relatively short, and then they went into long-term recovery, where FEMA gets involved and things like that. What we're seeing that's so different with the coronavirus is that the response and the recovery are blended together. There is no beginning or end of one and the other. And so, excuse me, what we found talking to our colleagues in China is that we have to really, as we're in the response, start preparing for the recovery. So uh, it's quite fascinating. Just think of coronavirus as what's going on globally as a tunnel. And, you know, we see China is leaving the tunnel. There's light at the end of the tunnel and they're starting to recover. They're starting to go back to work. Actually, uh, quite a large percentage of companies are starting to go back. Europe, Italy, Spain, uh, um, UK are in the middle of the tunnel where it's dark in front, it's dark in the back, it's dark all around, and it's it's uh, pretty scary. The U.S., North America, including South America, we're just entering the tunnel. So I think as we think of, of what we're doing, we should remember that we will get through this and we will get out the tunnel, out of the tunnel. So what is China doing that we can learn from? I, I think a, a key factor is that as they're starting to recover, they're putting safety plans into place. Um, the government is actually required that they prove that employees are healthy and that they can go to work. They're requiring to prove that the work site, the factory floor, the office, the lab has been sanitized adequately. So they have to demonstrate almost through like an auditing process. And um, what they're doing is then they're making them go through a review and say, are you safe to operate from an operations perspective? And we're seeing that um, they've become very adaptive. So, you know, when I think of the people on the phone now, which are from all over the United States, and some of them are large companies and some of them are small, dispersed, uh, distributed companies, is they are taking advantage of the uh, geographical differences. So different parts of China, we all know about Hubei province and Wuhan, severely impacted other provinces less. It's similar to what we're seeing with New York versus Kansas, for example. So they started to use the geographical differences and how they started to go back into producing faster. And they started a lot of new innovative techniques. It's, it's really interesting, more of a barter system and working with competitors to get back up to speed. And I think a note for us to remember as we're thinking about recovery is let's be careful about opening too fast. And Hong Kong is potentially facing a second wave of coronavirus. So, you know, as we're preparing to recover and preparing to go back to operations, we need to be very careful and we need to plan if a second wave, you know, late, uh, late summer, early fall in the U.S., 
is going to come back and hit us again, and how do we prepare for that? Well, that's uh, that's fascinating, Nick. Um, for I mean, how can those listening to the webinar today help their organizations recover from this pandemic? What's the first step? Yeah, the first and most important step, Greg, is taking care of people. I, I mean, that is number one. Uh, no matter what kind of company we have, no matter what kind of work we do, um, we're, we're people-oriented. So being empathetic to everyone in the in the company, in the organization, the government agency, in the community, reaching out, communicating frequently with them is critical. And, you know, I, I think, Craig, an important lesson that is important for us to remember is a lot of people are really getting their news from their company, from their organization. So if you're part of that organization, you need to really make sure your employees are safe. But it's not just the employees, it's the families, too, because people can't work if they're worried about their their spouses and children and if they're safe. And, of course, you know, we're all working at home, or most of us are working at home. And so how do you um, plan to go back to work but not too early? And it becomes important to start putting those protocols I mentioned that China did before they went back to work. And I think the key factor in being empathetic and talking to the company, to the employees and the families, is trust and transparency. You know, when we look at major disasters and we look at who's done well and who hasn't done so well and world-famous disasters, it's mostly when they didn't communicate the transparency. They weren't transparent with what is going on, what can I expect Maybe I don't know all the answers, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what I know, and I'm going to tell you what I don't know. Because if I break that trust, I can't rebuild it quickly. And that is critical to really taking care of my people. Well, look, I think that's uh, fantastic because people are the priority, of course. But what's next? So... You know, as as we're getting ready to, in that blended zone, as I mentioned, of sort of response and recovery, and in the U.S. we're really in that blended zone, is is really to set up a a clear governance system for what's unique right now. I mean, we're in a unique situation, and let's be honest, we're making it up as we go along. You know, hopefully we're putting in crisis management plans that companies have, but uh, you know, practically no one had really been well prepared for pandemics. So maybe they were prepared for fires or hurricanes. So this is a very different animal. So what is the main thing in, in this new type of environment, this new governance system, is to be very uh, careful about setting clear decision-making and setting up sort of almost new principles to how I'm working. And, of course, number one is, being very people-focused, protecting my people, protecting the business, protecting my customers. And, you know, as I get involved and I'm uh, being empathetic and talking and listening to my people and my customers, I still have to be careful not to become, to get sucked in emotionally and become reactive. I still, as a, as a leader, need to be data-driven. And so how do I do that? You know, part of that response recovery, especially as we start thinking about recovery, is to think of it in three phases. What do I do right now? What do I do sort of in the medium term? And then what do I do in the long term when I'm fully operational again? And, 
and, and really game out these, these three scenarios. And you know, I like to call it experimenting in a safe environment. You know, so many of your teams are at home right now. Use them to experiment new methods, new business models, new ways of doing work. And you're in a safe environment because they're at home. And so it's a chance to become really agile and really creative. Okay, Nick. Um, well, look, I hear you loud and clear. Take care of your people. Establish a clear governance system. Um, and we all know that recovery may take some time, and we're going to need a plan. What's the first thing we should focus on? So the, the first thing in that plan is really understanding that the risk you're facing. Like I said, this is something that, that is so unusual and unprecedented at this scale. I mean, literally, I, I think the last statistic I saw was a third of the world's population is is uh, uh, sheltering in place, more or less, depending on how you define it. That, that's an incredible number. And close to um, uh, a large percentage uh, of the United States as well. So I need to understand, you know, as a person in a business or in an organization, what are my risks? You know, my old risks for doing business are still there. They don't go away. But now I have compounded on top of that coronavirus. I've compounded the fact that people are keeping social distances. I've compounded the fact that they're working remotely. Um, or I've lost, uh, you know, certain employees that aren't able to work because they've been uh, um, infected. So what I need to do, I talked about those three phases. You know, that first phase, the immediate, is preparing for this one- to two-month lockdown. You know, it's interesting. We look at... China, they started locking down seriously in mid-January, and they started uh, loosening up around mid-March. That's about eight weeks. And one of the lessons we learned is they were telling us, be prepared to return to work actually faster than you may think. So again, um, we have to be very agile. That medium phase is if I'm disrupted more than two months. I could be disrupted two or three. I mean, people have talked about the coronavirus being very significant and peaking in, uh, in different places where we could be out until July timeframe. New York won't see a peak, uh, according to the governor, until, you know, the next two, week, two or three weeks. So we can expect that it's going to be significantly more difficult. And then that third phase is when I come back, what, what is the environment am I going to find? Uh, am I going to be in a major recession? Uh, is my supply chain still going to work? And so it becomes really important to, to game out, as I mentioned, sort of that experimenting in a safe environment, those three scenarios to be prepared as we work through immediate, medium, and long term. Okay, Nick. Um, so I hear you. We have to run some new risk assessments and um, we have a lot to get through. I have uh, several more questions I really want to ask you. So let me see if we can uh, get through these. So how do we deal with the disruptions to our supply chain? Yeah, that's really, really important. And I, the first step is to really think about your customer. You know, is your customer still operational? Is he still buying products? Is he still interested in your services? So, you know, once I do that, I, I want to reinvigorate my customer and supply chain relationships and really make sure that they need what I'm selling. And so as I'm doing that, and I'm looking through the supply chain, I need to verify, 
that the uh, supply chain can actually give me what I need. You know, make sure they're not overcommitting. Make sure they're not overpromising. And me, as a producer of goods and services, when I'm talking to my customers too, I have to make sure I'm not overcommitting or overpromising. And and I think Craig, one of the key aspects in that supply chain is making sure the transport of your materials, your goods, are still, you know, able to do, to get through. Are they able to move from state to state? Are they able to move by rail? Has something been shut down? Is it on half service? That all becomes very important as I'm communicating to my my customers that I'm ready for for business again. Well, that's really great. Uh, I'm sure um, that's probably something that's not top of mind, but we should be keeping in in, uh, in mind our supply chain. Um, let me ask you this. Once we're back up and running, what and where should our focus be? So it should definitely definitely be on making sure I understand my risk, I understand my, uh, uh, my assets, and that I, I really am safe to operate. You know, um, we have that art of, uh, t- that term of art, the right to operate. Do I still have the right to operate? So I I need to still do pre-start safety reviews. I still need to make sure that my employees can operate. I mean, I could have a very limited um, team because they've been out sick, because they're not, uh, you know, able to perform the normal functions, and I have to come up slowly as uh, as I'm opening shops. So I have to be prepared for opening in waves and phases. You know, um, as I mentioned, China was really, uh, you know, forcing companies to make sure that they could uh, be operational in a safe way. I think that's what we need to do in the U.S. as well. And, and as an owner of a company, as a director of a company, I need to make sure that um, I'm still safe to operate and that when people come in the door, they won't get sick with coronavirus and that I can produce my products and services as I've promised. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point, Nick. It sounds like... Um the strategy there is to take small steps and uh, kind of begin to focus on slowly opening up so you can make sure that uh, everybody is being taken care of. I mean, this is obviously a lot to think about, and we're still in the middle of this pandemic here in the United States. Uh, What should we be doing while we're waiting for the outbreak to subside? I think... uh, um that's such an important question, Craig, because, you know, basically, you know, all of us have stopped in one form or another or shrunk um, our operations significantly. That's a lot of downtime. A lot of people are at home. That's a lot of talent that are sitting around. Take advantage of that talent. Use technology. Use the different social media. Use the different uh, types of, uh, of uh, video chatting to actually communicate with them. So the first step I talked about was engaging your employees and communicating with them. Use this as a time and redirect their energy to help them uh, look at, how do I get into new markets? You know, Can I redesign or test new business models? Use their brain power right now. Don't let them just sit at home You know, where you run the risk that people become bored and get depressed. Use it and, and focus them very aggressively and very positively into how to uh, improve the business, how to make it, um, uh, you know, actually come out of the tunnel stronger than it went into the tunnel. So not just sort of 
survive this this uh, terrible situation, but actually thrive in it. So we really want to almost crowdsource our employees for ideas. You know, solicit it and and really listen to what they they have to say and think and put them to work. Use this time, especially if they're going to be sitting there for a month, two months. Let let's use it um, productively. Well, that's great, Nick. Uh, and then we need to communicate about what we're doing, right? Absolutely. I mean, that is fundamental. And, and I think, you know, it's really all of the stakeholders, Craig. It's it's that management of stakeholders. You know, what I would recommend is, you know, map out all of your stakeholders. You know, the shareholders, the customers, the suppliers, the vendors, of course, all of your employees, the families, and really spend time understanding their, their pains and needs um, like you do with customers. Uh, do that with the whole stakeholder map that you have. And really, you know, this is a two-way deal. Don't just talk to them. Listen to them. Understand those pain points. Take that information in. That's going to help you fortify your business, make it more robust at the end of this tunnel, and really use that information to help you rebuild your business in a stronger way. And of course, I think the most important point, uh, uh, Craig, is ensuring to maintain that trust with all of your stakeholders internally and externally. And you do that by being as transparent as possible, as logical, and really keep that trust because that is what's going to get you back on your feet and moving back in an efficient way and not being one of those 40% uh, companies that fail or that 29% that you cited a, a few moments ago. Yeah, I think those are, I think that's great advice, not just focus on external communication, although it's really important to uh, for organizations to be communicating externally, but also to be listening during this time, listen to what their workforce is going through and uh, there's a lot of positives to be gained from that. Um, so, uh, Nick, I'm just going to recap here. And, uh, I mean, you obviously uh, gave us so much to think about, but if I get it correctly, it's number one, protect our people. Two, establish a clear governance system. Three, run new risk assessments. Four, develop a realistic view of our supply chain and customer implications. Review risk and asset integrity. Uh, use this downtime for productivity and not last but least focus on external communications. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, as I've said several times, you've given us so much to think about. And as we like to say, it is possible to turn risk into opportunity by being prepared and proactive. It's never too early to begin planning for recovery. Obviously, we're all managing the best we can during this unprecedented outbreak. Uh, Dr. Werwath, uh, there's a lot of fear and anxiety caused by these sorts of events. How can we help our employees cope during these trying times? And how can we help ourselves cope? And what can we do while at home to protect our own mental health? Craig, thank you for those questions. Um, <clears throat> It's paramount that we provide a safe environment for um, our employees that addresses recommendations by CDC, um, WHO, the feds, uh, the state, um, social distancing, PPDs, uh, hand washing, facial care, that kind of thing. We need to listen to their concerns, acknowledge their fears, 
um, acknowledge their stress and anxiety. As you know, employers, we can never be dismissive of someone's problems uh, with a certain situation. I will offer talk therapy options to my uh, employees if they need them, and we will help them with those. If we have to financially assist with them, we'll do that. I like to lead by example. Use the PPD, um, follow the recommendations. Uh, you have to be strong in the battle. You're first one to work, last one to leave. Don't let the fear control the moment or the outcome. Use reason, scientific knowledge, logic, and sometimes faith and understanding to get through these moments. Um, now, it, and I find myself at times in, in other situations trying to preach or pontificate. Now is not the time to do that. It's to be understanding, to be empathic, to be a listener, and to be open to change um, uh, when the situation you know changes or continue to be fluid and dynamic. How can I help myself? Um, I try to stay current on the recommendations. I stay current on the epidemiology, stay current on the treatment options, have a plan in place for uh, most of the options, who to see, who to treat, how to treat. Um, I have to acknowledge the feelings of, that I have uh, and blend them with the feelings of others. And in my case, I have to sometimes hold off some of the jokes I'm used to telling, um, and I have to own my feelings, which um, at this point doesn't include a lot of anxiety, but I have to keep understanding why that's the case. If we're home, uh, having a um, schedule, routine in place to maintain mental health is important. Wake up at a specific time, uh, set a, a bedtime within reason, um, set the schedule in advance, uh, maintain hygiene, the idea that we don't shave, we don't shower, we just get lazy, all that will lead to anxiety and depression. So showers and you know normal routine should be maintained. Don't verbally isolate. So face to FaceTime is good, talking, texting, computer, email, you know, calling people up, just spending time talking and letting one's feelings and ideas out is very important. Try to limit screen time. It's probably not a bad idea to watch one movie a day and spend less time on your computer and on your phone than you uh, might in a situation where you have the extra time. Reading is important just to stimulate brain cells. Exercising is very important. Have a exercise routine in place that you you know hold yourself accountable to. Um, and as we mentioned before, have an established um, uh, uh, bedtime. Uh, talk to your provider. Talk to a friend. Talk to someone if you're stressed or depressed. Seek help. Um, Financial fear is hard to uh, overcome, but uh, understand that um, our federal government hopefully is doing their best to get us the assistance that we need when we're in those dire kind of straits. Um, and deadlines for rents and payment back of loans and such are currently being waived. Uh, and hopefully, you know, most um, um, lenders will um, follow those rules. And, and lastly, enjoy the time off. Um, it's something that you may never in your lifetime have another opportunity to have one or two weeks or a month where you can read, sleep, and exercise and watch movies and spend time with your family in this type of way. So make it an enjoyable experience. But those would be my suggestions to the three areas that you um, asked about. Well, thank you so much, Doctor. Uh, Dr. Gorduk, uh, anything that you want to add to what Dr. Warwath shared about just protecting our own mental health and how to get through some of these stressful times where we're finding ourselves in positions of fear and anxiety? Yeah, I think Dr. Warwath gave uh, really good um, 
comprehensive advice there. I'm just thinking about our own family, what we're doing at this time, because uh, my kids are either home from high school and junior high school or home from college, and all of a sudden our whole family's together. And um, one thing is to do what you can do, and so that is uh, practice the safe practices we've been discussing, avoiding spreading or contracting the virus. But also, I think it's really good to view this as a time that the family can get together and spend quality time that they otherwise would not have. So, for instance, um, we tend to be playing board games in the evening together, uh, quite a few members of the family. That's something we haven't done for a long time, but it's, uh, it's something to do and to enhance your relationships and friendships, and that's 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 one thing to do. Um, Another thing that we're trying to do is to contact people that might help, that might need help. So uh, think about your neighbors and think about the elderly. Think about those who might not have m- much support for themselves. Give them a call. Ask them if uh, they need any help. Offer to help them out. I found that our neighbors really appreciate uh, taking the step to do that. Don't worry. People are going to be really glad that you're reaching out to them. Um, Another thing is that, you know, our churches are really closed down and the church services are closed down, but I really, what our family's doing is participating uh, through webcasts, either our own church or if that's not working, other churches. And that's really also helpful to keep in contact with your usual support group of friends through such means. And I would also urge doing that. And also, I would say, keep hope. I think that we're hearing... um, a lot of dire news every day, constantly, every hour of the day from the from the television and from our computers. But, you know, I think we're going to get through this. I know we will. And it's not quite as bad as it's being presented. I, th- I, I mentioned earlier that uh, it's really less than 1% of the people who are infected are dying. And so uh, we don't really know the extent of the uh, severe disease and mortality, but it's less than it appears to be at the present time. But that does not give us the, the uh, excuse not to be really vigilant in preventing the spread of the virus, but it should uh, give us comfort in knowing that it's not quite as r- high risk of mortality that it seems to be uh, screaming to us from our television screen, screen screens at each moment of the day right now. And uh, again, another the other thing I'd really like to emphasize is that you, if you or your workers have symptoms of a cold or a flu, runny nose, fever, sore throat, shortness of breath, and it seems like a mild cold, just stay home. Don't go to work. Don't go out to the stores. Don't infect other people because the coronavirus can present as just a mild, mild cold. And so... Uh, Part of the uh, attack for our mental health is to do what we can do. And these are the, some of the things we can do rather than being worried about what we can't do. Well, that's, so, so those are some ideas for you, Craig. Uh, those, that, that's some great advice. I mean, two things I take away is, you know, I heard hope and compassion. Um, there's no better time uh, than this time to be compassionate. And when you reach out to others, uh, it certainly takes the focus off yourself and a lot of the fear and anxiety away from from yourself when you're trying to uh, help others. And I heard exercise and maintaining a normal routine. 
I personally am going to try to social distance from my refrigerator uh, now that I'm working from home every day. Um, this has all been some great advice. Um, and I'd like to uh, thank my panel of experts today for your wisdom and insight. And if anyone has any other questions or would like to hear how DSS can help you as you're navigating through this unprecedented time in our history, you can contact DuPont Sustainable Solutions at dsslearning.com. We can help your organization stay the course by delivering innovative safety training and employee development solutions on these topics and so much more. I know there are many of you attending the webinar who have some questions for our panelists. So uh, Barry, I'm gonna hand it over to you for some Q&A. Sounds great, Craig. Thank you so much to everyone for sharing your insights today about this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, We've gotten some terrific questions so far. I just wanna also remind everyone who is attending today of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey should be appearing on your screen right now. This survey is really important. It is, uh, allows us to improve our future webcast thanks to your feedback. And if you don't see the survey on your screen, please go ahead and turn off your pop-up blocker. And you may also access the evaluation by clicking on the survey button near the lower right portion of your screen. Now let's go ahead and get to some questions. We've had some terrific ones come in. Uh, Dr. Warwath, I wanted to start with you. Um, We have a gentleman who who offered a question today. He is working on a job site, a construction job site, and it is remodeling a hospital. The deadline has been pushed up for this project, so therefore that means more workers and more contractors on the site. Uh, uh, This facility has uh, taken a step to install a sink for workers to wash their hands, and they are also checking everyone's temperature each day before the workday begins. This, this person wants to know, are there any other steps that he can take as a leader on that site to keep his guys healthy, to keep his workers healthy? I think it wouldn't hurt for him to ask uh, his employees or his coworkers to report any upper respiratory type symptoms they might be having um, prior to coming to work on a daily or frequent basis. Likewise, having uh, them report if they've been exposed to someone at home with a similar kind of thing might just uh, alleviate some of the anxiety so they could make determinations if a person should actually be on the work site for that day or should be you know, being tested or self-quarantining or just uh, staying at home to see if uh, symptoms do develop. Okay, great advice. And Dr. Gorduka, I wanted to ask you a question from an attendee here. We've had several questions about how long the virus lasts on garments. For example, if we cough or sneeze into our sleeve, um, should we dry dry clean that garment promptly or what are the best ways to avoid uh, passing the virus along to our families when we wear that garment home? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And, you know, this virus is so new that we don't have all of the answers to these questions. But I think that uh, in terms of garments um, and uh, other surfaces that are being t- tested, I think it's a good idea that to, uh, to launder them or wash them uh, frequently if we're in the process of having uh, respiratory symptoms or indeed if their person does have COVID-19. I don't think we know the exact length of time that the virus can stay viable on a garment. And so we just have to use our best uh, judgment to keep 
our bodies clean and our clothes clean and to frequently launder our clothes if we do have respiratory symptoms. Okay, great. Thank you. And, and Nicholas, I wanted to share a question that came in with you. Um, someone is asking about the uh, what your thoughts are on minimizing risk for companies such as manufacturers that must remain open during this time um, and, and are critical to the supply chain. What would your advice and your thoughts be on that? Yeah, actually, I've talked to a lot of companies that are exactly in that position. And what's really key is to, again, understand what those risks are and to focus on um, how am I protecting my people because that's what's keeping the manufacturing plant open. Um, there are a lot of companies that are 24-7. So what what is going to um, stop everything is if my work crews can't be there um, during that 24-7. So coming up with contingency plans, uh, you know, understanding what are my critical tasks I need to have done no matter what, and then how do I protect those who are doing the, those critical tasks or the most important to keep things going. Okay, great. Thank you. Good advice. Uh, Dr. Warwath, I wanted to ask you about, uh, somebody asked a question about how long should someone take quarantine if they have, just for example, a, a usual seasonal illness, how long should they quarantine? I apologize. Um, part of your question was uh, disrupted by static. Is it a question regarding uh, the um, quarantine of just upper respiratory symptoms that is uh, not a COVID virus type syndrome or yes, something exactly. that is, is, is yes, positive a uh, with a swab? Yes. Yeah, someone um, has a usual seasonal illness, how long should they quarantine? Excellent, I, um, excellent question, and I, I really think that it depends on uh, the severity of the symptoms. So if there is a reasonable assessment that it is not a COVID-type uh, infection, um, making oneself uh, presentable for the public uh, in a period of time is probably the wisest thing to do. I think right now one of my biggest fears for this whole process is that after we're done, we're not going to want to ever be in a room with someone who coughs or sneezes and we're going to step away from them or treat them like they have the plague. And uh, it's understandable right now, but at some point we're going to get back into uh, normal allergic rhinitis and other um, influenza-type syndromes that are not as highly contagious. So I think in, in the current environment we should uh, take the steps to try to, you know, symptomatically control uh, what we're dealing with. And once we're more presentable in terms of it might be three to five days of cough, cold, and runny nose, then we could re-enter the work environment or the public sector. Okay, great. Thank you. And we have time for one more question before our time is up here today. Nicholas, I wanted to ask you, um, we, have a, we have an attendee who asked, what, what guidance would you have for company leaders about when and if to send employees to work from home? Um, so the question is, when should they, we send employees home? Is that the... Sure, sure. What guidance would you have about sending workers to work from home? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the most important uh, factor, again, is the employee, right? So um, it becomes really important to send people home when you can no longer protect them, period, right? So if if in mm -hmm. the environment, if they're uh, going out on, in public transport, all of those things make it really difficult to get to work and get home safely. <clears throat> and that's the reason why people are being asked not to come into work because of the fact of, of the contagion and how dangerous that is. So I think that that's the key factor. The challenge the business person has or the, 
the you know the the leader has is trying to decide if certain functions should um, be shut down and whether they should uh, work from home or work um, separately, and that's a difficult balancing act. So again, really understanding, you know, what are my critical functions and how am I going to operate? Uh, I think. Uh, Barry and Greg said at the beginning of the call that a lot of the people on this call are essential personnel. And so uh, that becomes really important to understand exactly that question. Great. Thank you so much, Nicholas. And unfortunately, we've run out of time today, folks. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out our evaluation survey on your screen to share your input. And that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank our outstanding presenters today, Nicholas Barr, Dr. David Gorduk, Dr. David Warwath, and Craig Sexton, along with everyone from our sponsor, DuPont Sustainable Solutions. And we thank all of you who listened in today. Have a safe day and stay healthy.